This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Thursday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. You change often because of pain and, and sometimes because of involuntary challenge. Something comes along and knocks the slats out from underneath you. It breaks you into pieces. And maybe you put yourself back together and maybe you're even stronger after you've been put back together, but you break into pieces first. Hi, I'm Dr. Oz, and this is the Dr. Oz Podcast. He's been called an accidental icon of the modern-day philosophical movement. Dr. Jordan Peterson's work as a clinical psychology professor at the University of Toronto has gained international recognition for his profound and often controversial insights. He often explores and ignites fiery discussions on faith, personality, self-empowerment, and identity politics. Today, Dr. Peterson is back with me to help all of us gain a better understanding of our full potential. Each civilization has determined its balance of rights with responsibilities. So what do we owe our government and what does it owe us? Probably the fundamental question that created this entity, the United States. How do you define that? Well, I think we owe our government our attention more than anything else. Because without our... The government is a dead entity. It's the past. The past is blind and it can't change itself. And so it's always in danger of losing contact with the realities of the present and degenerating into something that's anachronistic as the environment changes. And what we owe it is wide open eyes and the ability to speak because it's wide open eyes and the ability to speak that updates the structure that maintains peace and harmony and productivity. That's our responsibility. Things manifest themselves to people as problems. That's why people are obsessed with political problems. This bugs me. 
It's okay. Well, the first question is, well, why does it bug you? Why that thing and why does it bug you? Well, it speaks to your soul in some manner. That's why it bugs you. And what should you do about it? Well, something. Because it wouldn't be bothering you otherwise. That's, that's a, it's, a, it's a message from very, very primordial levels of your consciousness that something is out of kilter, that has something to do with you. And so then you owe your government the responsibility of taking on that problem and trying to address it. If it's a complicated problem, then you better have your act together if you're going to try to address it. You have the responsibility to be the eyes and the voice of your government. That's what keeps it alive. People have known that since the time of the ancient Egyptians. Right? Their god, Horus, was a speaker of truth and a visionary. He could see and he could speak the truth. And it was his power that revitalized the state. That's us. That's our consciousness. That's what, that's what we owe the government. So if we owe that to the government, and theoretically the government owes us protection and uh, f- making us interact with other countries in some organized way, organizing our tribe, what happens to the covenant between people and their government, a nation and a citizen, when we become borderless? Why is that issue so painful right now in America? Well, the first question is what constitutes a border you know, like if you're playing a monopoly game, then the border is the, the edge of the board. But it's also the edge of the rule structure that's organizing your behavior. And the reason you can play a monopoly game peacefully is because there are borders. There's a structure that defines what constitutes appropriate behavior in that defined space. And you need that. Because otherwise you fight. And you see this. Children will fight when they're playing monopoly because they can't stay within the borders. So you can't have a borderless condition because there's no up and there's no down. Everything's twisting and turning all the time. It's nothing but chaos and people can't tolerate that. So then the question is, well, we have to organize ourselves into groups with borders. That's why we have walls around our houses. That's why we have borders around our cities. That's why we have borders around our states and our countries. And because we can organize and agree upon the appropriate mode of social behavior within those borders. You dissolve that, and no one knows what to do. You think, well, that's going to bring about peace. It won't bring about peace. It'll bring about chaos. Now, you might say, well, let's expand the borders as much as possible so that we can include as many people as possible in the game. And I would say that's a pretty good ambition. It's worked well in the United States, but you have to remember that in the United States... You don't just have a country here. You have municipal governments that are fragmented into smaller forms of government than that. You have state governments. You have a national government. You have a whole hierarchy of institutions that enable you as an individual to maintain contact with with the borders, let's say. You blow apart the borders casually. You don't have any of that structure. And... And that's not good. First of all, you have the chaos problem, and then you have the problem that I think the EEC is facing, which is that the ordinary citizen starts to see so many layers of complexity between them and their rulers that they lose their allegiance. So in in a country that has agreed they have to have a border, they fight about what that border should look like, how poor it should be, and especially when everyone's rights become the dominant theme, what happens when those rights are mutually exclusive. My right to free speech versus your right to a safe space, for example. Well, that's politics, or sometimes more deeply philosophy, or sometimes more deeply 
theology. But political it's, solutions don't seem to be offering us a remedy. Instead, people become more and more extreme for a bunch of reasons yeah. that I think most folks know about. We live in bubbles. We, you know, it's confirmation bias. We have a desire that that's the case, and we only look at that data. But it's become difficult through politics to make some of those difficult decisions. You know, if we, you and I are living in a little camp and that we can see the border and we can both say, well, I don't want that. That's a dangerous thing to come into our camp. Yes. That's a good thing. That's, that makes it sort of straightforward. Yeah, well, that's why I think and I suppose I've been trying to participate in a discussion that I hope is deeper than the political. Because when the political fails, it means that something that is holding it up is no longer working. And I believe that our belief in the structure that justifies free speech is shaking and that has to be reinstituted and part of the mode of reinstituting that is to go back to in my opinion to go back to the foundational stories of our community and to point out you know that we're each made in the image of god let's say and that we are sovereign individuals and that we have the ability to communicate and that that's something that we lose at our peril but the idea that borders can be dispensed with is it's, they, they do cause suffering. It, it's not a pleasant thing to have nothing and to be turned away from a place where you could move ahead. And borders do that. But by the same token, you have to define a space where everyone is playing an agreed-upon game because otherwise no one knows what to do and then that degenerates into, well, it degenerates into sectarianism and it degenerates into all sorts of things, nihilism and violence. And so as, as, as we resolve this concept of our rights versus our responsibilities, we're going to have to look at, at guideposts bigger than ourselves. Hmm. And it takes me to, again, how historically humans resolved this problem because it's been there since day one. And faith has always played a role hmm. in offering yeah. some advice on yeah. this. The weakness of that structure, that morality, that narrative, hmm. is... Uh, is is one of the one of the problems, and, yes. and its treatment, its strengthening might be one of the solutions. Well, it undermines. See, sometimes it's about rights, but mostly it's about responsibility. Citizenship is about responsibility, and your responsibility is to constrain unnecessary suffering and to push back against malevolence. That's your own malevolence. It's the malevolence of the social world. It's the malevolence of the natural world. That's your moral obligation. And to be responsible is to act in accordance with that moral obligation. And I don't believe that we have done a good job of communicating that. We haven't articulated it properly. Partly it's because when the conservatives articulate it, you owe your country. There's this duty. It's like, it's like, it's, it's, it's a patriarchal voice demanding that you sacrifice yourself for your country. There's like, there's duty. It's all duty. And duty is a perfectly reasonable virtue. But it, it does engender rebellion, and, and for good reason, because it can be tyrannical. It misses the point. And the point is that you, you need to accept responsibility. It, it's, it's your essence. And you need it, not least, because by accepting responsibility, you find meaning. And people know this. Like, if you look at the people you admire, let's assume those are the people who are living properly, that you have a natural tendency to admire people who are living properly because you want to imitate them, and it's an instinct, you know? You admire people who take responsibility for themselves and for their family and for their communities, you know? It's natural. And you see in that a valid mode of being. 
you think, well, why do you need a valid mode of being? Why do you need to take on that responsibility? And the answer to that is simple. It's because you're going to be subject to suffering and you're going to be subject to malevolence. And that's going to embitter you unless you have a purpose and you need a purpose that's high enough so that it's an antidote to the suffering and the malevolence. And, and the, the faith that you described, which is the faith in the sovereignty of the individual. It's the faith in the divinity within the individual. It's the faith that the consciousness that we, that we share, that's the remarkably miraculous element of us, can, can contend with the structure of what might be and to make it into something good. Mm-hmm. And we can't lose that. It's not optional. People literally die without that knowledge because... They become purposeless and nihilistic. And then the suffering and the malevolence overtakes them. And they, that either crushes them into depression and, and they can't live, or it embitters them and they become cruel and vengeful and, and, and worse. And so these aren't optional concepts. And the notion that responsibility is what gives you the meaning to withstand suffering, that's, that's a killer idea. Every time I talk to my, the audiences that I've been speaking to across the world, it's about 350,000 people now, every time I make that case, that argument, the audience is dead silent because everyone knows. It's like, yeah, it's that the truly meaningful things I do occur when I take responsibility. And the more responsibility, the more meaning. Like the more weight and the more burden, it's, it's, it's not nothing. It's the tragic acceptance of destiny, I suppose. But... Everyone knows it to be true. And everyone berates themselves endlessly when they're failing to live up to their potential and not accepting the responsibility they know is part of their... It's part of what's ethically required of them to live properly in the world. There's lots more when we come back. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Do you love fashion? Do you love getting compliments on how well you're dressed? Are you always seeking the latest trends? Then we're talking to you. BostonProper.com is your fashion destination and the only place to go for all those nods, head turns, and new styles. No matter the day, season, or occasion, Boston Proper has what you're looking for. Sophisticated, confident clothing designed to flatter and get noticed. So visit BostonProper.com now and start creating your perfect wardrobe. Boston Proper. Wear it like no one else. Help us explain how human hierarchies forced us into tribes. Well, I think it's probably that it's probably our better angels in some sense that do it. Everyone agrees that perhaps that your primary loyalty should be to your family and 
that logically extends to your extended kin group, like evolutionarily speaking, and you know, then maybe that elaborates up into your tribe. Your tribe is set up to cooperate and compete towards necessary ends and to provide you with a, a context of friendship and a structure of meaning in your life. And it, it can't be of infinite scope because you lose the personal relationship that's necessary to keep it functional. And I think one of the things that's happening, for example, with the European economic community and its fragmentation is that the size of it is too much. So the distance between the people at the bottom and the people at the top is so great that the people at the bottom don't feel any personal power. They don't feel any connection with their leaders. So there's like an optimal tribal size. And it's a testament to people's ability to cooperate that we produce tribal groups. And, and we do it at the drop of a hat. We do it when we organize sports teams. Yeah. And, and you see how powerful that tribal motivation is. Well, in the case of people's allegiance, say, to a sports team, it's a very natural part of human existence. And a lot of it is admirable. The problem is, is that there are many tribal groups, and that puts us in conflict. Because on the one hand, the other tribal groups pose a threat to our way of being in a variety of ways, like a genuine threat. Threat of disease, for example, which has been terrible, terrible threat throughout our evolutionary history, but also the threat of radically new ideas or the threat of physical conflict. By the same token, all these other tribes, they create interesting things. They have new ideas. They, they have ways of being in the world that might be really helpful if we could incorporate them. And so we have this terrible tension between our in-group loyalty and our out-group curiosity. And it's, it's, it's one of those opponent process issues where there's, there's positive and negative things pushing in both directions and getting the balance right is extraordinarily difficult. So much of human history has been one long narrative of enslavement, fighting between tribes. It, I remember you said once that if you met someone that was not like you, historically, one of you would die. Mm -hmm. right? That's right. So how do we begin to strive, to, how do we reprogram ourselves to accept a different outcome where we actually get bigger and bigger tribes, that we actually feel like we're seeking the same? Not the well, I think, I think the United States is a really good example of that, is that you need a, an overarching narrative and so a narrative is a story about how you should conduct yourself in your life, right? It's a story about who you are and where you are and where you're going and why and how you're going to get there with other people. So you need that universal narrative that's acceptable to people. And then within that, you can place tribal groups, but they have to subsume their tribal loyalty to that fundamental larger narrative. Mm -hmm. And so there's a melting pot element. You can keep that, those elements of your tribal affiliation that aren't in contradiction with the underlying meta-narrative. So why is that dissolved now? We, we seem not to have that melting pot mindset well, anymore. Well, you still have it to a fair degree. You know, we don't want to get too pessimistic about it. The U.S. is pretty peaceful, ethnically speaking, despite what people think and say. It's much more peaceful ethnically than it was, say, in the 1960s. And I think that's the same with most Western countries, although not all of them. So there's no reason for despair. But, you know, the, the problem is, is that part of the narrative that united the, that united the United States and all its people was predicated on the idea of self-evident truths, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident. And those truths themselves are embedded in an underlying narrative structure that we don't really understand. That would be the Judeo-Christian narrative structure, which is thousands of years old and, and has its roots 
tens of thousands of years before that. And it consists of a series of, of stories about what constitutes a human being. So, for example, one of the most fundamental elements of the Judeo-Christian narrative is that human beings, men and women alike, which is a staggering statement for something that was written so long, are made in the image of God. And so there's a notion that each individual has sovereign value. And that's something, you can't prove that, right? It's an axiomatic statement. It's something you have to accept on faith. And then allied with that, because the question is, well, if you're made in the image of God, what does that exactly mean? In, in the narrative that lays that out, what God does when you are first introduced to him is he's the creator of order from chaos. And he does that with truth. He creates the order that is good, because that's repeated consistently, what I've created is good. He creates the order that is good from chaos, from possibility. Mm -hmm. And that's what human beings do. And so that's why each human being is of intrinsic value, because we have that role to play in the world. And that's part of this massive underlying narrative that composes the self-evident part of the political structure that unites all of us. When we start to lose the beliefs that enable those fundamental propositions to be self-evident, then the whole thing starts to shake and, and, and move. And that's not good. That was Nietzsche's warning from back in the, the philosopher Nietzsche's warning with the idea that God was dead. Or Dostoevsky's warning that if there's no God, then anything is permitted. And that, you know, that the collapse of that underlying structure can make us hopeless and nihilistic, and that, leads to, that can lead to very dark places. Yeah, Nietzsche wasn't bragging that God was dead. He was lamenting. Oh, yes, he was terrified. Like Nietzsche believed that the consequence of that was that we would have to create our own values, that we'd sort of have to become like gods ourselves. But the problem with that is that we can't create our own values. We don't have the capacity for that. I mean, try. Wake up at 3 in the morning when your conscience is bothering you about something you've done and tell yourself that, no, it's okay. You're going to make your own value and that reprehensible action that you undertook is now fine. You see how far you get with that rationalization. It's like you'll find that you're working against an intrinsic moral intuition that has you in its grip. And, and that moral intuition is a guideline to the underlying moral structure of the world. Now, I don't know what that means metaphysically, you know. I don't know if that means that the world really is a like a, a narrative of the fight between good and evil. But as far as human beings are concerned and their psychological makeup, it certainly is. So why is it that so many people seem to hate others who have different political perspectives on what's going on? Oh, well, it's not surprising. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons to be ethnocentric, you know. Other people are genuinely dangerous. Other ideas are genuinely dangerous. You know, I mean, look at, look at what happened to the Native Americans when the Europeans came to the New World. I mean, they brought with them all these diseases, like dozens of diseases, measles, smallpox, mumps, um, chickenpox. They lost 95% of their population in like 100 years. I understand the risks of different tribes. Yeah. I always thought the deep fundamental frustrations with each other would arise because of those higher stories we're telling it, what we're aiming for in our lives. Like well, there's that. Purpose, right? there's that, too. I never thought politics would do that. Politics is how to, it's more tactical. How are we going to tax each other to take care of some issues so we can all live in harmony and seek that higher goal? Yeah. So fighting within religious disciplines, yeah. I sort of get that. Yeah. Not good, but I understand it. Yeah. But it seems like religion has taken a back seat and politics well, seems to have absorbed imagine, some of that anger. Okay, so imagine that the hierarchy of of 
of human conflict is something like this. At the bottom, you have tribalism. Right above that, you have religion. And then right above that, you have politics and economics flowing out of that. And what's happened is that many of our political discussions have become religious or tribal. And so they're becoming more serious. So we're not talking, we're not in the domain of politics. We're down beneath that. We're into the domain of what's self-evident. So for example, there's a free speech controversy on campus. Who should talk and who shouldn't? That's what people think the free speech controversy is about. But that's not what it's about. Because the radicals on campus who are opposed to free speech do not believe that free speech exists. They're underneath the political domain. Because in the United States, if you're acting politically, you can argue about who should speak and who shouldn't. But you can't argue about whether or not people should be allowed to speak and that would be useful. But the argument on the campuses is, well, look, you're not a sovereign individual. That's all nonsense. You're a member of a group. You're just a mouthpiece for your group. You don't have anything individual to add. It's not possible for groups to communicate to one another in any reasonable manner or to negotiate. And the entire political landscape is nothing but a nightmare of competing power, uh, competing power claims between groups of different identity. The whole idea of free speech is something just invented by the dominant power group to oppress the minority power groups. So it isn't about who should speak. It's about whether free speech exists. That's not political. That's theological. It's certainly philosophical, but I also think it's theological because it, it violates the claim that each person is individually sovereign and is a source of valid information. So like, if you and I are going to have a discussion, I have to presume that you have the capacity to face the world and to change it for better or for worse. And I have to listen to how you lay out your propositions. I have to believe that there's something there to you that isn't just your social construction, that isn't just your political identity or your, your group identity. Well, if I've dispensed with all that belief, there's no possibility for us to communicate, especially across racial or ethnic or sexual barriers. One idea that I've been playing with is the thought, that to help address this is to remind people that a lot of our differences are genetic. So. If these genetic differences also influence whether we're Republicans or Democrats or we're pro-life or pro-choice, then it would make people perhaps more forgiving. How, how, Maybe. Re how realistic is that? Are we really genetically that different? And take disgust as a good dopamine. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, far more of what you think politically is determined by your temperament than you think. Your genetics. I mean, yes, yes, by, by biological factors. And so it's useful to know that because that helps you understand that the person that you're talking to isn't just arbitrarily different. They're actually different. When you think, well, that's a bad sort of difference, it's like, well, no. It's a sort of difference that might be useful in a particular set of circumstances. So I can give you an example. Liberal types are higher in creativity, which is a temperamental tra trait that's heavily influenced by genetics. And they're lower in conscientiousness, which is also heavily influenced by biological um, factors. The disadvantage to that is that they tend to be disorderly and chaotic. But the advantage is they tend to be creative and entrepreneurial. So all the entrepreneurial types are liberals, or almost all of them. And you can see that by what's happening, say, in places like Silicon Valley. Well, that's fine, man. You need the entrepreneurial and creative types to generate new ideas. And you need to generate new ideas because the old ideas de decay and age. Like, it'd be lovely if we could just fix things and then 
That was a permanent solution, but it doesn't work that way. But what the liberals don't understand is that, well, they're all fine. They're fine in terms of creating their new, their new entrepreneurial ventures, but they need conservatives to run them. They need the conscientious types who are not as pro- prone to think laterally to take the algorithmic processes that they've now invented, right? Because they have a structure and to implement them carefully. And so there's this dynamic between the liberal and the conservative in, uh, in a free market society that drives the entire economy. And so you might be annoyed at your crazy liberal colleague who's, you know, taking risks all the time and is coming up with, a, you know, 10 crazy ideas an hour. But without him, you'll stagnate. And he might be just as irritated as hell at you because you're so damn narrow-minded you can't get out of your, your little, you know, your one-dimensional trap and things have to be done exactly the same way or you're, or you're going to be upset. But you two need each other. And then what you need free speech for, in particular, is to negotiate between those different temperamental types to come up with a solution that's optimally functional. That would be the first thing, but also that you can both live with. And the great hope of societies that are predicated on the idea that the capacity to speak freely is an expression of our divine essence, let's say, speaking in this deeper sense, is that we can, in fact, negotiate our way to peace. I think that successful human societies do exactly that. And that is the cure for the mediation between different tribal groups. It's like, well, what's your perspective? God, I have to listen to you. Oh my God, that's so terrible because it's going to undermine what I believe. I'm going to have to question things that I think of as sacred even. I have to listen to you as if you know something and you have to do the same for me. A terrible process. You know that if you're married to someone, you know, it's, it's, it's very brutal to have a genuine conversation. But there is a possibility that what will come out of the chaos that that produces is a new kind of order and that that new kind of order will be superior to the previous order. And I I would say that is the history of humankind because over the centuries, our tribes have united into larger and larger and more and more peaceful aggregations. And the net consequence of that seems to be, well, much, much less male homicide. That's the first thing. I mean, we do have outbreaks of terrible wars from time to time. But all things considered, it looks like an upward climb as a consequence of, I would say, as a consequence of careful negotiation. Just the... It's worth investing the time to listen to people you don't even like because they'll add to your life. Well, they'll also tell you things that no one else will tell you about yourself. Maybe you don't want to know those things, but your friends won't tell you that. Your enemies might. And then you'll learn something that you might need to know. You know, and it might save your life to learn that. So it's bitter and terrible, but, but maybe not as bitter and terrible as the outcome. More questions after the break. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. 
To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Do you love fashion? Do you love getting compliments on how well you're dressed? Are you always seeking the latest trends? Then we're talking to you. BostonProper.com is your fashion destination and the only place to go for all those nods, head turns, and new styles. No matter the day, season, or occasion, Boston Proper has what you're looking for. Sophisticated, confident clothing designed to flatter and get noticed. So visit BostonProper.com now and start creating your perfect wardrobe. Boston Proper. Wear it like no one else. We're all living in a world of continual comparison to others, at least of fluctuating emotions, of smug superiority or desperate insecurity. And the big question is, how do we stop measuring our self-worth by someone else's standards, especially when social media is the main way, especially a lot of young people, to find themselves? Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's two things. The first thing is you should figure out who to compare yourself to. The best person to compare yourself to is you yesterday and not someone else today. And the reason for that is you don't know anything about these people that you're comparing yourself to usually. One of the things I've noticed is that it doesn't take much discussion with someone, no matter how successful they are. You scratch below the surface and you find that their life is, consists of trouble and suffering in, in proportions that you could hardly imagine. Almost everyone is dealing with some serious problem, personal problem or problem in their family. Sure. And, and relative status... I suppose it's better to be rich and miserable than poor and miserable, but, you know, the misery is universal. And so what you're comparing yourself to, if you're envious, it's an illusion, and it's not a helpful illusion. It's not a fair race to to be racing against someone else, but it's a fair race to be racing against yourself. You could be slightly better than you are, and that will actually, the thing about that that's so cool, and I think the, the psychological literature really indicates this, is that slow incremental improvement from your initial baseline can take you places that you couldn't possibly imagine and envy is only a it's a impediment to that you've talked frequently about how stories the old tradition the bible yeah uh, can remind us of deep fundamental insights of who we are yeah i'm going to put an image up of cain and abel it's a story you've talked about quite yep. frequently what does this story teach us about envy well, what happens, you see, Cain and Abel are actually the first two human beings. They're the first two human beings, real human beings, because Adam and Eve are created by God. And so in some sense, well, they're not like us. But Cain and Abel are born, and they're two sons, and, and they, they enter a state of mortal enmity. You know, And the reason for that is that Abel makes sacrifices to God, and Cain makes sacrifices to God. And Abel's sacrifices produce success, and Cain's produce failure. Now, you know, the sacrifices are very concrete. They're making burnt offerings, and that seems very anachronistic, old-fashioned, and and incomprehensible to modern people. But the idea was that you could offer something of value, and you could offer that up. The smoke would rise to God so he could detect the quality of your offering. And if the quality of what you were sacrificing in the present was high enough, then the future would work out for you. And this is an unbelievably brilliant insight, because human beings are the only creatures that have really figured out consciously that you can let go of something that you need and want now and forego gratification and you will actually improve your future. So it's a huge deal. You know, it's the discovery of the future. 
And, and so it's a, it's a massively important oh story. Goodness, you're right, discovery of time. It's the discovery of time, yes, and it's the discovery that you can actually act in the present so that you can bargain with the future, and it actually works. So it's, it's a real miracle. And then well, what happens is that Cain's offerings aren't accepted, and Abel's are, and this makes Cain very, very angry. And no wonder, because, you know, if you're working hard and it isn't working, you know, pe people aren't happy with you and you're not making progress through your life, then you get bitter. And that's what happens to Cain. And so then he goes and has a conversation with God. And he says, like, what's up with this world you created? I'm working myself to death here and nothing's working for me. And my brother Abel, well, everything's coming easy to him. Everyone loves him. What's happening? And God says something like this. He says, sin has made its entry into your dwelling place, into your home. And sin means to miss the target. And, but it's, it's, it's in this metaphor, it's presented hide, as hide a living you, thing. You fire an arrow and yeah. you miss your bullseye. That's yeah. a sin. That's a sin. It's a sin to miss the target. So you can do that by not aiming or not having the skill. Or, anyways, God tells Cain, and it's a terrible thing to tell him, he says, sin is waiting at your doorstep and you've invited it in to your life evil and you've entered into a creative union with it and it's that creative union with this evil that you've invited in that's compromising your sacrifices and that's the cause of all your suffering and Cain is devastated by this because he's already not happy that you know Abel is doing extraordinarily well and all his work is going for naught and now he goes and complains to God about the structure of the world and God says you look to yourself your sacrifices are not what they should be. And you've made terrible mistakes that you're not taking responsibility for. And Cain, he can't tolerate that. The story says his countenance falls. He becomes absolutely enraged at the structure of existence. It's not only that he's suffering, but that he now realizes that the suffering is self-induced. And he can't tolerate that. And he's so angry at, at being and at God that he decides he'll kill Abel. And it's a terrible thing because Abel is also his ideal. So he kills his own ideal, right? And then he tells God that his suffering is more than he can bear, and God marks him and sends him on his way. Where is he running to? Well, that's the question. I mean, Cain's descendants degenerate generation after generation. He's running away from his terrible crime to hell. There's, there's no other way of, of putting it, and I'm not speaking metaphysically. One of Cain's descendants is Tubal-Cain, and Tubal-Cain is the first person who makes, in tradition, he's the first person who makes weapons of war. So it's, and, and Cain's sons are even more dangerous than Cain. And so there's this idea in this old story that it's this envious rage coupled with this inability to make appropriate sacrifices that produces misery, and then that misery can, can desire to manifest itself in the world in the exaggeration of suffering and malevolence. And that leads to social collapse. So if we've made a bargain uh, in our lives and acknowledge that there's time and we can negotiate the future based on sacrifices we make today, then we have tremendous control over the world around us. Cain could have stopped sinning, stopped missing the target, yeah. stopped constructing a world with evil. Yeah, he could have learned from Abel. He could have made the right sacrifices. Instead he killed him. Instead he killed him. And there's, all, there's this ambivalence in the... In the story, it appears as though Cain's sacrifices are second rate. You can never tell because there's some, you know, look, sometimes people work really hard and things don't work out for them. There's an arbitrariness about life, you know, and, and that is left ambivalent in the story. Although there is this strong undercurrent suggesting that Cain is 
playing fast and loose with the divine. Well, let's say he's playing fast and loose with the future. Well, that's not going to work. Everyone knows. It's like, if you want the future to work out properly, the sacrifices that you make now have to be real. And people understand that. I ask my students, most of whom are children of first-generation immigrants at the University of Toronto, and some pretty dedicated to their, to their task, say, well, what sacrifices did your parents make so that you could go to university? You know, and I mean, they moved countries. They, they, they left everyone behind. I mean, this idea of sacrifice, which is concretized in the story of Cain and Abel, is something that every modern person understands. But it's, it's useful to understand it in an articulated way. It's so strange that you can bargain with the future and that it works. It says, well, I'll forego this gratification now. I'll, I'll, I'll take the harder route now. And the future will open itself up positively. And that actually works. And if you it's, don't do that bargain, you made the point that it always comes back to get you. Yeah, and everyone knows that. Every undergraduate who procrastinates is guilty about it. They're torturing themselves, atheistic or not. There's no escape from this. You know, they wake up the night before, or maybe it's the night before their final, and they put everything off. They're sweating. They feel weak and, how do you and useless. How do you cultivate acting better today for a more successful tomorrow. That is a challenge for a good sliver of the population. Yeah, well, I would say humility is the key to that. Look, if you have a child and you love that child and you want the child to develop, you set them a task that exceeds their current domain of competence, but you set them a task that they have a reasonable probability of succeeding at, right? Not, not complete because then it's too, it's too easy. It has to be a challenge. You look at the child and you say, well, here's your ability level. Here's one more step you could take, right? Well, then you have to do the same to yourself. You have to take stock of yourself. That's a meditational exercise. It's like, who am I? Where are my flaws? And, and they're not going to be something you want to face. And then you think, well, what small thing could someone as flawed as me do that I would do that would improve me? And then it's humiliating because you think, oh, my God, really? I have to do something that small, that's all I'm capable of? It's like, yeah, that's your lot, man. And you better be humble enough to accept it. And then you, you make that small improvement. But then what you find is that small improvements accumulate. Those things compound. And you can start moving ahead very, very rapidly with a succession of small improvements. And there's a metaphysical element to this. But, you know, it's also the basis of behavior therapy, which is the widest used, widest employed brand of, of clinical psychology now in the world, behavior therapy. It's like, well, let's figure out what your problem is. Let's figure out what your goal is. Let's break down your problem until we have a small enough piece that you can address it successfully. Let's see if you can address it successfully in the next week. You can go out and try, and if you can't, we'll cut it down a little bit more. And let's assume that incremental improvement is going to move you up, and it does. But it does require that humility. And it's not a matter of comparing yourself to other people. It's not helpful. It's like, what are you doing wrong? And you can ask yourself that, right? And, and, it, and you, the problem with asking yourself that is you get an answer. Yeah. And it's not an answer you want. It's like, oh, my God, really? That's what I'm doing wrong? How could I be so foolish and blind that that would be my mistake? And how can I be so little and useless that this is all I can do to improve it? You've got to get that's that's to get down on your knees in some sense be, be, before the ideal that you're attempting to manifest, you know, and to show where you are in relationship to that. The, the upside of that is that it's, it's an unbelievably powerful process. You can put yourself together 
to a staggering degree merely by ceasing doing those things you know you shouldn't do. I've asked Dr. Peterson to review two slides that he uses his lectures to describe, depict how we can be better versions of ourselves. So I'll start you here. You're in the middle of the walled garden. It's beautiful. It's elegant. As you pull back from the walled garden, you now all of a sudden see that you have the opportunity to move into chaos if you descend and disintegrate into that. And there's anomalous information that falls back from chaos that can mislead you. So I'll turn it to you. I've, uh, I've witnessed you do this brilliantly. Well, this explains how you can improve yourself, but also why you won't. So the walled garden is a metaphor, among other things. I'm not trying to reduce it to only a metaphor, but it suggests that the natural environment for people is something like the balance between culture and nature, because a walled garden is exactly that. It has walls, borders, but inside it has the natural world. And so our natural habitat is the balance between culture and nature. And that's the balance between order and chaos, at least in part. And so that's our natural environment. Um, and that's part of the message in, in Genesis, is that that's, that's where we should live. A, a well-watered place, uh, a walled garden. That's Eden, or paradise. Now, the problem is, is that you circumscribe your small space, your walled garden. Maybe that's the, the tightness of your family when you have little children, for example, because you want to set up a protective space around them. But there's always... There's always the outside that's still there, right? right? And, and outside the walled garden, there's everything that can disrupt and expand it both at the same time. And what happens is that as those things appear, sometimes because you search them out, which is probably the best way for them to appear, but sometimes because they just make themselves manifest. Trouble comes to visit you. And the trouble is something you don't understand. That's what anomalous means. It means you don't understand it. And so it doesn't fit in with your conception of the way the world should be, and it shatters you. And that's the descent and disintegration. This is an imitation or a representation of an ancient representation of, of chaos itself, right? It's, it's the winged predatory serpent. It's, it's the predator itself. That's one way of looking at it. It's what lurks outside the safe confines of the walled garden. And you can't keep it out. It comes in. And the consequence of that is you lose faith. You lose faith, the walls are breached, and you descend, and then you descend into chaos. And that's a terrible situation. And that, that can make people desperate. It can make them lose hope. And so it's also why people don't like to change. It's, you know, you change often because of pain and, and sometimes because of involuntary challenge. Something comes along and knocks the slats out from underneath you. It breaks you into pieces. And maybe you put yourself back together, and maybe you're even stronger after you've been put back together. But... You break into pieces first. And this is partly why the road to enlightenment is so difficult for people. It's not uphill. It's downhill and then uphill. And then it's downhill and then it's uphill. And maybe with each successive peak, you rise higher and higher if you're fortunate. But that doesn't mean that the descents are any less catastrophic. So people will hide. They'll hide in the walled garden like Adam hid from God. They'll hide in the walled garden because, well, they don't want to let what's new in and it's no wonder but doesn't work it doesn't work no so you also created an, a representation of an archetypal circumstance of life the idea that we always exist inside of a damaged structure right that is partially biological hmm. partially not so take mm -hmm. a look the partly mm -hmm. sociocultural so here yeah. you're pulling back right? and again you've got this fantastic palace palatial place you're living from you know i maybe it's the ideal city yeah well that's it on the 
affair. And, and, See, well, that's it. You're always, you, this is, this is the, the constant complaint of the revolutionary. It's like, well, look at this terrible damaged structure with its holes that we've inherited from the past. It's like, well, that's an archetypal experience, is that the state is damaged, that, that chaos threatens it. It's, it's, it's always that way. That's, that's the monster at the gate. It's a, the broken walled garden mm, from so earlier. That's right, exactly that. And, and so from that, the hero emerges, right? Say, well, there's something wrong with the structure of the world. The hero emerges to co confront chaos voluntarily. That's your best bet is, well, there's the hole. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to ignore it? Or are you going to go and explore its contours and try to repair it? Well, that could be, dan could be dangerous. It's, 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 not, it's not a trivial undertaking to do that. And it might very much annoy the people who are still, you know, ensconced, as they think, safely within that original structure. But the hero emerges from the damaged structure, awake, right? And, and comes into contact with the, the chaotic forces that threaten the stability of everything, does that voluntarily. And the consequence of that is the generation, the, the discovery of a treasure. It's the archetypal hero myth, the discovery of the gold that is then brought back to revitalize the community. Or the freed, often a virgin is freed. That happens in St. George. And part of the reason for that is, well, because that can represent wisdom, but also because I believe historically and biologically that, well, women are attracted to, to men who do that, who go beyond the damaged structure of the current state and who voluntarily encounter the unknown. And that means that they've developed themselves into the sort of individual that can now have a relationship with a woman. And she wants someone who has that capacity. And so that's part of, well, why St. George frees a virgin from the grips of a dragon. It's not an easy thing to understand otherwise, you know. But if that happens, then you have reintegration and you ascend back into the well, that structure we started. Well, that's the hope, is that, you know, your incorporation of the new information, whatever you've learned by venturing outside of the safety of your damaged community, is now something that you integrate and you rebuild the community as a consequence. And then that puts the walls back. You know, and now it's temporary because the walls are always under assault. Here's a way of thinking about it. Well, what are you? Are you the damaged city? You certainly might feel that way. That's, that's depression, yep. you know, or, 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 or cynicism. Or then, are you chaos itself? Because you can certainly feel that way too, that everything's fallen apart around you and that there's nothing to you or your life but chaos. And so, or you can think, well, maybe I'm the reestablished order. You know, and that seems like the best of the three deals, right? It's yeah. like, well, but... but I'd want that. But there's, but there's something better than that. There's something better than being the damaged city and being chaos itself and even being the the city that's revitalized, and that is to be the process that continually does this. Because this is, the destiny of this is that. It'll happen again. It'll break again. It'll break again. So what you want to recognize is that this is what you are. You're the thing that confronts chaos when it makes itself manifest. And, and I think that's the oldest story of mankind. It's, it's the story that emerged when as, who knows how long ago, millions of years ago perhaps, we decided that we were no longer going to hide like frightened rabbits and wait for the predators to take us out. We were going to organize ourselves and go out into the unknown and make the space safe. That's whose descendants we are. That, that story is so deep, the idea of the confrontation with chaos. It's the, it's the story that opens Genesis, for example, and it's, it's echoed in the idea that the fact that people are made in the image of God is partially a consequence of our ability to confront chaos and to regenerate order. 
So I, I watch you tell these stories and respect tremendously the psychology of it, but I simultaneously see the profound emotion in you as you share with us deep wisdom, millennia-old wisdom. What's that coming from? Well, it's partly coming from a chronic inability to regulate my negative emotion particularly well. So there's that. But look, here's partly what it's coming from. Recently, you know, because I've, I've become more emotional, I would say, over the last few years. And it's partly a consequence of the encounters that I have with individual people all the time. And I don't really know what to make of it. You know, like I was sitting in the airport yesterday in Toronto and about six people came and talked to me and they're very polite and this is always the case when people come and talk to me they apologize for interrupting me and I tell them that it's fine they're not interrupting me then they tell me about being in chaos or they tell me about being the damaged city you know they tell me about something that wasn't right in their life you know they weren't making progress with towards a marriage with their girlfriend, they were stuck in stasis, or they're alcoholic, or they're addicted, or they're in a career that they didn't like, or they weren't getting along with their parents, or, you know, all the terrible places that people could get stuck. And they say, well, look, I was watching your lectures, or reading, listening to your podcast, or reading your book, and then, well, I decided that I'd start to pursue what was meaningful. I develop a vision for my life. I started to take on more responsibility. I started to tell the truth. And everything is way better. And they're emotional when they discuss this. And I think this is partly what's made me more emotional, is that I have all these stories that people have told me now sort of lodged inside me that are representatives of this. And, and the, the thing that, that's emotion-producing is that there isn't... This is fundamental. People cannot live without knowing this. They, they don't live properly. And, and, and so they discover some of these things. And everything gets better. And it's affecting to have people tell those stories. It's also saddening to me that people are so desperate for this knowledge. You know, it's, it's ancient knowledge. We, we clearly need it. It doesn't take that much to distribute it so that people understand it. And the effect is overwhelming. And so, well, and then there's the fact that I just haven't adjusted to the fact that people keep telling me these stories, you know. And so when, when I'm talking about this, it's not abstract to me. Like, I do believe that this is the fundamental structure of the world. We, there's no more accurate way of portraying the world than, than that order, descent into chaos, restructuring of order as that's Sisyphus's journey. And it's the way uphill. And it's punctuated by catastrophe, which is why the way uphill is so difficult. Is the pain you feel because so many haven't heard this message yet and you realize they're in pain and they don't have to be? Or is it the unbelievable experiences of witnessing people change in ways well, that never Well, it's joy, possible? partly. You know, I'm so thrilled that, you know, when someone comes and tells you a story like that, you know, and then just little stories. I, I went to this restaurant and... Toronto and one of the waiters there had been listening to my lectures and he said, you know, I just have this waiter job So, you know, it's not a very high status job and he said but six months ago I started watching your lectures 
And I thought, man, I'm really going to do this job, you know, like I'm going to put myself into it. He said, I got three promotions in six months, you know, and so I'm doing way better. And because he took this domain around him that he had control of, trivial as it might appear, contemptible as it might appear, if you're in an arrogant state of mind, you know, oh, I'm just a waiter at a restaurant. What can I do? It's like you could be good at it. You know, and God only knows how good you could be at it. And that means you can hone your interpersonal skills and you can become hospitable and, and you can take some pride in the fact that you can offer people the opportunity to have a little happiness maybe, even if you're only contributing that to some degree and you can strengthen yourself characterologically. And so he tells that story and he's smiling away, you know, it's like, so that's great. And it's great to hear those stories constantly. But then there's a sadness that goes along with it. And the sadness is that, well, that encouragement is lacking. People lack it terribly. That's one of the things I've realized on this world tour that I've been on is that you have no idea how many people have never heard an encouraging word. You know, it's, so that's deeply affecting. And also how little encouragement people need if it's true encouragement, you know. Be courageous. You know, that's true encouragement. It's amazing how little they need to start changing. And so that's also sad because it's like there's a terrible illness and you don't need much medicine and it's available, but it's not being used. Well, for you also personally, as you pointed out for others, the more you do, the more you know you can do. So your burden doesn't get lighter, it gets heavier the more you do. Well, that's what you see in, you know, you hope that while you, while you, while you do that, you get more organized, you know, so that you can... You can manage it better. And the other thing, too, is that it's very important to understand, you know, let's say as your burden grows. I learned this about two years ago. I had this very profound experience, which I can't really talk about. Um, it, was, it was like a vision of paradise. That was part of it. And along with that vision came the knowledge in some sense of what paradise required. And then as the vision disappeared... I realized that I'd lost the secret to whatever that was. Like on the way back, so to speak, I'd lost that secret. It was like Gilgamesh when he returns from the depths. Yeah. He has the, 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 the tree of immortality, but a snake steals it from him. I think that that was based on an experience that was similar to the one that I had. In many ways, it doesn't matter. But then, and it was, it was really hurting me that I, I had this knowledge and then I lost it. And then I realized that well, this isn't something that you have to do by yourself. That this, the, the journey forward to the proper destination isn't, and then this is part of what makes the burden lighter, is that it's not just on you. Like it is on you, man, it's on you. But everyone has a role to play. And so there's no reason not to reach out for help. And so as you take on more responsibility, you build a structure around you that enables that responsibility to be hoisted in a manner that doesn't crush you and because crushing you isn't helpful it's not it's not moving you forward and so there's a humility in that right it's it's even though it is on you to to put things together it's also on everyone else and everyone else has a role to play and they need to be invited into the process it's like it's everyone's fault individually but we all collectively have to take responsibility for it. And that's possible. And so that was, well, that was the way out of that conundrum because I did really feel terrible about it that I had, you know, felt in this strange state that, that I had discovered something profound. 
and then it was a great relief to understand that, well, you, you don't have to, even though it's your responsibility that this is not something you have to do alone. You have your community and it's fine to reach out as much as possible and to, and to not to grant to people, but to help people realize what role they have to play in, in, in moving this whole process forward. And so that was a great relief to understand that. I don't know what you didn't bring back, but I know you give all of us a glimpse of heaven and the courage to seek it. So thanks for being with me. diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.